An overview of 2023 books read. As Michael Scott said, that Michael Jordan said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So I always tried to have a reading goal for myself each year. Not just a number, 52 this year, but in scope or scheme or a third thing that starts with us, um, uh, symbolic genre. This year, my time to read a fewer theology books, but ones that I really wanted to focus on. Biblical Theology by Andreas Kostenberger and Gregory Goswell, and on Getting Out of Bed by Alan Noble. Check that box. I also wanted to return to a more heavily to my first love, classical sci-fi. Finding new old authors like James Blish was amazing. Earth Abides by George Stewart was probably one of my favorite reads. The Shadow of the Torture by Gene Wolfe was a rabbit hole of fun. Uh, starting the Bobbyverse showed me again why I love sci-fi and how amazing it could be. Then some older British alien invasion books like Jonathan Christopher's The Tripod series. They've been threatening to take my nerd card away if I don't tend to read some fantasy, so I read The Hobbit, but got to share it with the joy of my oldest daughter in reading it out loud or listening to it on car rides. I added in some indie pub authors to help in my endeavors. Some were good, some weren't. They're just something about ye old future and ye old ray guns that get me over sword and sorcery. I shall endure still. Not everything was great. I tried another Dane Ortland book and another Dan Simmons book. After two from each author, I can just... I, I can just be done with them. It's fine. Not every indie author should be the second part of that title, but overall, even the okayish indie pubs were good stories. Overall, I enjoyed what I read and going through the list of books. Overall, I enjoyed what I read and going through the list of books. I relived memories of being on vacation and reading about Severian, the torturer, or the rides to the dance class while listening to the brave nervousness of one Mr. Bilbo Baggins, or finishing the thousand page uh, biblical theology book in three weeks to be prepared for an interview. Finding new indie authors or new old authors was a treat. With this show, our message has always been to read for the purpose of glorifying God. You might skip this episode entirely as these are just a handful of reviews from a humble reader of no particular status or unique based insight. But the discussion you have in your reviews or the world or in your friends group or family around the table or with your favorite mentor on a podcast builds your worldview and we join in sharing the quality of storytellers and story listeners that God, the father of all truth and light, shares with us. The Reviews The Revenant and Tomb by Herman P. Hunter Overview Four adventurers, the main human character, the warrior with the magical sword, the elfish archer, and the short, muscular, dwarfish fighter journey to fabled mountain of Mount Horn of Torgiv to defeat some old evil. Review. There are two types of fantasy stories. With fantasy, novels tend to fall into one of two camps, world building or quest. Fantasy trends since about Robert Jordan have been an attempt to get beyond the thousand page mark and build a world where it seems like every family line and every forest has its history and story. The quest adventures seem to try and establish cool characters quickly and get in the action. World building tends to lose focus on the quest and quest stories tend to forget that the reader might not know the world that the story exists in. The One Who Returned. Where Hunter succeeds well in this quest, storytelling, is hinting at a world that is bigger than the story and makes characters interesting enough to want the reader to imagine more if another book isn't available. With just four characters to focus on, the world building can be narrowed down to just their stories. And really, there's only one character that is brought into the most focus. On the other hand, the quest story, which is to a cave and back again, uh, flows the story well and in a reasonable time and story. The story's action and drama builds, rises, climaxes, and falls in a well-paced way. At 140 pages, this can be a difficult thing to do. The three main adventurers are different than the uh, than the race of man, elf, and dwarf giant, but they're not so different for you need to know everything about their makeout. The curmudgeon guide drum is a good foil for the audience, learning new information about the world and the bigger story at large. 
in the tomb in the forest. The prose of the story is well written. It's not too heavy in the ye old story. There are some really great lines and metaphors. One of my favorites was, no spoilers, in the midst of battle, one of the characters praying for the wind to come to have one moment of coolness. At that part of the story, that line was palpable. There were a few misses, like the quickness of the light catching fire, like fire to gasoline. Uh, This world could have gasoline, but it was a line that took me out of the story for a moment. The main character has an interesting story told within the story. Well, not specifically a Christian fantasy outright. Uh, The main character has a very interesting backstory of being resurrected from the dead and attributing the deeds, salvation, and creation to a one true God. The world Hunter writes of has all the elements where the author believes the world to exist in which adds element uh, of the authorial magic. One of my biggest gripes with Mar- George R.R. R. Martin in the world he writes in a clear indication that the God, gods, etc. exists and that smart characters do not believe this and neither does the author. The book does not suffer from this deficiency. The action quests and characters move along, and the read is quite quick because of the action. The biggest complaint is the ending. I'm co- okay with a story not being part of a 12-part series, and this is the only book the background given makes it more than enough in ideas of the world created. The very quick glance over one of the characters changed, and end result is very glossed over for the sake of limits on a page, even if the ending is good. Christian art fantasy. If you're looking for a quick story with a good quest, good combat, and three-part story arc that believes in the world it creates, this one does what a good book does. It leaves you wanting another story, and a little bit more reveal of the world. I also listen to the audiobook, and the narrator Steve Fortune does a phenomenal job, and more narration from him should be sought after. There is only one God, and he saves the remnant to go to the tomb. Final grade, B. The Star Dwellers by James Blish. Overview. An alien race is discovered by humanity for the first time. These aliens seem to be blowing up Earth's spaceships. How rude. But it doesn't seem malicious. It is up to three men from Earth assigned by the UN to make a treaty with the aliens. There you know how it's fiction is that the UN does something. From what I've been told, James Blish is a pulp author who is known for including religion in his sci-fi. This is an area of sci-fi that I feel is very lacking. Not that I don't understand it, but the fact that it is rarely dealt with is in these different worlds is a loss to storytelling. I rarely do synopsis for books and reviews, but these older pulp novels, they don't tend to have the best descriptions. So very quickly, an alien race is discovered by humanity for the first time. These aliens are referred to as angels and as one of the first beings created after the Big Bang, and they live forever. They exist as glowing cubes that have the capacity of blowing up earthships. They've done so in the past due to not knowing how to interact with humanity until one of them, nicknamed Lucifer, a play on the name for Fallen One, who accidentally enters the engine area of one of the ships and they can find out that it harnesses energy that can greatly enhance mankind's ability to travel the cosmos. It is now the job of three men assigned to the UN to make a treaty with the aliens. The three men are the worldwide respected ambassador, a hero soldier, and a young man from an elite cadet organization whose job it is to stay on the ship while the other two take an unobtrusive ship to make contact with the alien, uh, the angel leaders. The main character of the story, Jack Luftus, is the cadet, which is already a great start. Blish wrote the novelizations of some of the stories from the original Star Trek, and his writings read like sci-fi in the Star Trek universe. A major plus. While there is a focus on two other members of the crew, and Jack isn't just some cadet, but an elite cadet, He is still the odd man out, which makes for a great hero main character. There isn't really much focus on the other characters, and the two other crew members get out of the picture pretty quickly. The story starts off well and slow enough to build up. 
They're an exposition dump at the start that's done within the confines of the logic of the story. There is no, as you all know, proceed to explain what everyone knows for 30 pages. There is some good technology talk concerning the aliens and hum- humanities technology. It's advanced for star travel, but not really that broad. Again, for 1961, there's a decent amount of science that isn't hand-waved way of tachyon fields mumbo-jumbo. The way ships travel at almost speed of light is a bubble-type field that takes into account that the mass of the ship and occupants increase. Pretty neat science talk there. The story does kind of stall for a bit before the main storyline, but there is some interesting coverage of what the future was in 1961. There's talks of two sexes, which for modern-day Star Trek stories is heretical. They talk about how music corrupted the youth, so the cadet organization instilled celibacy during the time in service, so the focus on the job would be prioritized. Education was given to them to value high-minded concepts and instill duty to carry them out. The background even brings up some flaws with this, as they say that they didn't want to use legislation to handle the corruption because the other side could deem you as the enemy and might be used and might use it again and your bad taste. 2001 would like to have a word with Guantanamo with that take. Lines like addiction being the disease until you legislate it, then it turns in addicts into criminals and legislation against smut creates black markets is a very libertarian understanding for 1961 sci-fi. Talks of pacifism in the age of nuclear weapons is pretty neat to see in, in a book of that era. We go on to find out that the other alien species is kind of a federation of planets, and they're looking at what humanity does with these angels to see if they should be included. In this book, there isn't much that goes into that, but it adds a good deal of tension point that adds to the drama. The alien angels themselves actually read as, well, alien. Uh, There's a fear or at least a trepidation since they are so powerful and a danger to humanity. It would have been nice to build that up a little bit more within the unfolding of the plot, but it's covered enough that adds to the drama. Attempts at communication are handled quickly, saving for time, but the way in which communication takes place is what makes the story interesting, especially since the cabin boy is in charge of the negotiations while the hero and the delegate from Earth are lost in space. Communication and acts based upon standards of importance are what's focused in an unfolding plot. The aliens are surprised at humanity's being a young species and having a sense of justice. Humanity is able to teach them about deals and bargaining, which leads to talks about treaties. Way better than uh, Star Wars Episode One. The negotiations with the leader angel happens very quickly, and it's a thoughtful answer to what would benefit both sides in the negotiation. The final act of Jack needing to explain himself before the UN seems very odd and loses a lot of the momentum of drama and possible danger. There is an added discussion about whether something so alien could be trusted. There was a lot more that could have been unfolded here, like lying in a universal concept as well. Uh, And why should humanity be trusted? A funny point towards the end shows that the 24-hour news cycle is a modern-day invention, and I don't really buy Bush's point on this. The aliens discovered uh, wasn't even kept secret, but people heard about it on the news and didn't really care because it didn't affect them until they came to Earth for the negotiations. Yeah, I doubt it, even before the days before CNN, Fox, and etc. Overall, I enjoyed the story, even though I had a few sections where Bush slowed the story down a bit. There are some good turns of phrases and allusions to biblical imagery that add to the character's story. The ending doesn't feel the need to complete all the component plot open up, does offer hope and an eschaton while being a genesis. Final grade, B+. Penance by Paula Ritchie. In a world where superheroes are real and just like 
what such a world would have, there are heroes and villains. And there are those who exist with powers who are bent to do the will of those more powerful than them. Penance is a young girl who has only known a life of torture at the hands of Acid. She unwillingly helps Acid and his bosses run traffic girls. Penance is the muscle with her powers to exploit electromagnetism. Something then happens at a party to Penance that changed her whole worldview. That world is further changed when an alien invasion led by a boy named Kyle faces off against her. She works with her new worldview and those who believe she can work for good to stop the true evil powers at hand. Review. I was very interested in reading this book after hearing about it from Periopsis Press. Set in a world of superheroes and aliens, a young woman struggles to break free of the old life written with Christian themes without being cringe Christian fiction or current-day female protagonist. Only the pendant woman will pass. Following peasants as the main character is what makes the book. To say she's not the shave half her head and be against evil men would devalue the writing of such a well-rounded character. She's written like a real person who is a free prisoner, forced to do the bidding of the bad guys, and then the psychological torture, along with physical, makes her feel like a traffic person you'd read about in the news. Her growth as a person is within her character, and any change is met with resistance and struggle, just like a real person would experience. A dramatic change happens off-screen, and while some people may have wanted to read about that, it doesn't launch into the schmaltzy Christian fiction camp. Sanctification is the focus, and that's clear just from the title of the book. Behind Every Good Woman. The alien soldier, Kale, is a equally interesting character. He's a bastard alien within his own world who views everything from a cultural perspective of curing debt and paying off debt. Here's where Richie could have very easily hammered the schmaltz and had the main character uh, could have had a Vaseline wash lens scene where she preached to him about how there's uh, one who can take away all his debt. Try not to do the, it's like this book, but it's very similar fashion, Jean Valjean and Javert in Les Mis. You don't need to be told one is the grace and the other is law. Kale has equal moments of growth and background reveal that it makes him interesting. And there are times where more of Penance and him interact to flesh out more of each other. The adults in the story are also well-rounded. Military-minded heroes have stoic personalities where they feel where they feel like NPCs. However, so little is focused on them that other than a couple who interact the most with penance, they feel very underdeveloped to figure out their place in the world. More on that below. Look up in the sky. The main plot is great. I get it, and it's very straightforward in the best possible way. I just don't understand the world enough. It's a world of superheroes. But only really one justice is seen. There's talk about other primes, but when alien invasion occurs, no one else is seen. The Marvel's extended TV universe, where you don't understand why Iron Man or Captain America doesn't show up since everyone is essentially stationed in New York City. There are also aliens, and the Earth is a planetary alliance, but they don't care about invasion or kidnapping occurring between worlds. I didn't quite get what the entire world really looked like or what was made up of it. I think the Justice is kind of like a Green Lantern where he's the policeman for Earth Sector, maybe? The biggest issue I had was when many of the scene changes. They feel dramatic, and it was slightly difficult to figure out where we were or what was going on. For example, early on, Pennant shows up at the stadium the aliens are attacking. I wasn't sure how this was related to her or what was going on. The aliens also seem to be focused on obtaining supplies, but they hook up a hose to water and grab stuff from the stadium. That seems very low-key for holding a stadium of people hostage. These dramatic scenes change, changes happen a number of times, and I was confused for a number of pages, and it became distracting. The hero we need. 
but let me not distract the possible reader from turning down the book, as this was a worthwhile read. Penance is a great character. Following her story was interesting and a great investment. This is how to write real, broken characters who grow. Rishi wrote a real superhero with a real story. Now that's schmaltzy. Final grade, B. The Biggest Story, How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden by Kevin DeYoung. Overview. Once upon a time, there lived a man and a woman. They were the happiest people on the planet. Fortunately, things don't stay happy and wonderful for long. Here, DeYoung presents the story of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation, and the story focused on the one who had been foretold to be the snake crusher. The artwork of Don Clark facilitates the story that is a pleasure for both young and old, rich or poor, slave or free, born male or female, to know the snake crusher has come to set the captives free. Review. As Christian parents of young children, we are always trying to incorporate the gospel presentation to our children as they are our number one outreach audience we want to see come to salvation in Jesus Christ. And with young children, using pictures and stories is a big help in communicating that message. For the most part, young children's Christian literature involves fun stories without the consequences. We get the small arc with the draft's head poking out, but we don't get the reason for the flood to have occurred and being tied to God's judgment. We get David facing off against Goliath, but after the rock knocks out the giant, we don't see David ending the confrontation with the beheading. The stories of Jesus healing and feeding people and letting the little children come to him are there, but the cross seems to be missing from those stories. We remove death and judgment and the outcomes of sin from the stories of our children and wonder why there's no drive for them to see Jesus as anything other than our friend. Why see him as Savior if we're not showing them what he's saving us from? apart from an apple with a bite taken from it. But then we'll read to our children stories of swashbuckling pirates, wizards, and the battle of orcs, monsters being defeated by knights, or heroes of might. Works of fiction will communicate the hero's journey, but in the ultimate hero's journey, we remove the conflict that makes the brave one feckless and just another hippie lost in the era long ago. The biggest story from the cover offers us the hero's journey. The snake crusher brings us back to the garden. And the cover offers a literal path to follow. Here's a story that recognizes God as the storyteller and his story being not just the hero winning in the end, but offering redemption unable to be realized in a world without pain and suffering to be redeemed from. There is judgment, there is death, and there is the cross. Put into their proper context and designed from there the parent to limit or expand upon the need depending on the children's age. Yes, there are no lopped-off heads in here, but failure by man, judgment, death, and the snake looms around every rock. But so is the God of life and hope and salvation. There is the cross and the empty tomb in this book. The pictures are going to be the biggest seller of the book and cannot be separated for why this is a good story. The style of that, of the symbolism and the shape and form. There is almost too much on some pages, but done for a purpose. There isn't going to be Picasso's cubism as a way of denying reality, but in showing the epic nature of the story we exist in and travel in today. The mood is one that feels almost esoteric in weirdness and cosmic and grandeur. Again, one done with a purpose. The story doesn't conclude at the empty tomb or with Jesus just smiling after him coming back to life as we might see in other books. The story continues because we're in the midst of the story. The one drawback is I would have liked to see maybe just one or two pages or a few talking about the role of the church in the history of the people who have made it up and continue. But the story goes to where the title promised us, back to the garden. However, the story shows the grandeur of God's plan, even with the fall and salvation of his people. This is a resource and tool that should be a gift to all parents who have been given the gift of new life. Final grade, A+. 
The Hobbit by John Ronald Rule Tolkien. Overview. Hobbit. Bilbo Baggins joins wizard Gandalf with the dwarves. Dwalin, Balin, Keely, Feely, Dory, Nori, Ori, Oin, Gloin, Bifer, Bofer, Bomber, and Thorin Oakenshield to reclaim Lonely Mountain and the treasures of the dwarves from the dragon Smaug adventurers to be had. Review. No one is really going to read or listen to a review by some random dude about a story beloved for so long by so many. If I say I loved it, it's just one voice and a chorus of others. And if I had hated it, I would be chided for the lack in taste or understanding. If I said there were parts I liked and others I didn't, I'd be lost in the middle ground of, of it all and attacked by both fans and detractors of the story. However, one thing I can offer is the review of the time of this writing of a newly created seven-year-old girl in the year of our Lord 2023, as we read the story together and offer up her perspective as someone coming brand new to a work that really kicked off the fantasy genre. While the review may lack details and wordiness, I can tell you that there was no push by her father to like or not like any part of it, and to review it as accurate uh, take prompted only by questions asked by a loving father although this father might interject observations from time to time in parentheses. This was actually a take two reading as dad had only read the story and forgot that voices and inflections are what uh, drives children to get invested in the story. We did not make it very far for a kid who pretty, is pretty patient with a learning as he goes parent and enjoys a world of fairy tales and princesses. So this second attempt was assisted by a narrator with a British accent who could sing the songs and change inflections for the character. The Hobbit definitely has a lack of female characters, but this does not phase our reader too much, although adding one girl would have been okay with our reader. She enjoyed both Bilbo and Gandalf the most. She loved that Bilbo went on his journey, even though he didn't really want to, and in the midst of all the trials of the story, he wanted to do the right thing. A note here, it's interesting that doing the right thing here seemed seen instead of continuing the adventure or getting out of the situation. It's seen that the reader got Tolkien's desire and that Bilbo's role immediately. With Gandalf, one might think that the fact that he was a wizard and did wizardly things at times would be the draw for our reader. In fact, she enjoyed that Gandalf was with the troop of heroes for halfway the story and returns just when it seems like the group needed his help at the end. She enjoyed that Gandalf followed Bilbo back from the Great Mountain back to the Shire and completed Bilbo's journey with him. Spoilers? Action isn't devoid in the enjoyment of the reader. The Battle of Smaug and the ending of The Menace was her favorite part. She liked that the bad guy was defeated and peace would reign. Although the end of the story doesn't happen here, as she thought it was interesting that the selfishness of King Thorin ruined the peace and could have been a good time. Just like a good child asking, are we there yet? This was mirrored uh, with when are they going to get to Smaug? But it seems the building in anticipation was worth it in the end. Tolkien is known for building a world, and if a tree needs a history by Joe, that tree will get a full backstory. Our reader agreed that there were too much detail at times, and the desire to get on with the adventure was forefront. However, she also agreed that it allowed her to imagine the world of characters to be better extent. It's interesting to think about how many fantasy stories she's exposed to, and how figuring out the world and the rules of the types of magic encounters occur. This probably gets lost to us big kids who know these stories and story types and forget we need something sometimes to start fresh with our assumptions to get more out of the story. The details and the action parts were fun and added to the lengthening of that enjoyment. Even with times of travel and rest, our reader liked the character talking with each other and interacting. So even the boring parts were good for our reader. 
Our house is not unexposed to British humor, although sometimes the subtlety of a joke is lost due to our user's age or life experience. Yet the humor and British turns of phrases in Tolkien stories were not lost on her. While many readers, I believe, tend to overlook the songs, our reader found these to be the funniest parts. One reason is that we don't make up songs for stuff we do in our day-to-day travels, like it seems our characters did. This is probably a sad telling of the current state of culture, and one that Tolkien probably bristles at. When questioned on what was not enjoyed about the story, our reader thought for several minutes before coming away that there was nothing that she didn't like. When asked about Gollum being a mystery, she was okay with not knowing more about him. She liked that we would see him again in the next books. After it was revealed, he would show up again. Before that time, she was imagining more of what look what he looked like and what he was not. Even if there was no next book, she was okay with not knowing more about Gollum. When asked if she thought the ring was important, she says uh, that she believes it's important, but can't think of why. Our reader's enjoyment of adventure stories stems from enjoyment of mystery and their unfolding and being solved and guessed at. In this adventure story, there are big adventures, but there are also a number of mini-adventures in their travels. Each one has an interesting mystery to see how our heroes would get out of the situation or overcome it. She's of the belief that Bilbo would continue to go on adventures and do so with other people. It's clear that she sees the change in Bilbo from the beginning of the book to the end, and a child's mind would see the fun had in this adventure and want to continue it. Only the adult find would root us at home. Clearly, the story was enjoyed by a reader. When she asked, when asked if she would read it again, she stated that she would reread it a million times, even when she knew what would happen. Her father was informed that we would have to continue on to the next book. But as for this book, our reader gave a final grade of A+. The White Mountains, The Tripods, Volume 1, by John Christopher. Overview. The people of Earth seem to have always had the tripods in their midst. The only thing demanded is that at the time of maturity, everyone on the planet must be taken by a tripod and capped. The person returns exactly the same, but also different, with a metal plate covering a part of their skull. Humanity exists in a low-tech existence, but that's all it is, an existence. Will, his cousin, and a friend along the way find there is a resistance against the tripods in the White Mountains, but to get there is no easy task. They must survive the trip, Escape those who serve on bended knee, and of course, escape the tripods. Review. Having an affinity for War of the Worlds and alien invasions and dystopian novels, enjoying stories of one man against the system and escaping society, this book probably does the best job of hitting all those marks. While being young adult novel, being a story from 1967, this either feels more general because we've gotten less mature or the stories hold up as a generally good sci-fi. Taking place in a post-war with the tripods, humanity lives in small villages in relative peace and functions, just like any small town. In our initial setting, there's mills and churches and homes and community centers. The only catch is that around everyone's 14th birthday, a tripod caps you and you become servants to them. The big catch is that no one knows, not even us, the readers, what the tripods are or what capping even does. Aliens or robots or an unseen nation state? Hmm. Capping seems to quell any rebellious spirit against the tripods, but there is something mostly off about people that our main character, Will, seems to notice at this time of capping gets closer. Will's rebellious spirit causes him to want to run away, and does so when he meets a fake cap person, who tells him about a land of freedom, and it's off on the adventure we go. Will is a whiny teenager, but he's not without his redeeming qualities. Both sides of the swing makes him a very believable character and adds some naivete we'd expect from a sheltered life. His adventure out into the world feels very like My Side of the Mountain or Hatchet, 
uh, like with the looming danger of the tripods that are the unknown and unrevealed. Will's adventures out into the world and resolving to find freedom is a tale that speaks to a number of people. The setting is quickly established by mystery surrounds too much to uncover. Other than just sheer desire and the loss of one of his friends to capping, it would have been good to develop more of why Will wanted to rebel and run away. One could argue that this would limit the relating of Will, but the character is introduced well enough and it could be done with expanding out that desire for freedom and liberty or that reason why the tripod should be distrusted when everyone else seems okay with it. Will seems to grow and change, not always for the better, which again puts his character into a believable camp. He almost seems like a, a young adult Holden Caulfield who would break free, but also do it alone, but then relents the isolation of being alone from his point of view. There are times when the author does a good job of showing a flourishing of understanding of striving for liberty. One line that really stands out of the turning point was, quote, I have traveled a long road since leaving the village, not only in hard reality, but in my attitude towards people. More and more, I come to see the capped as lacking what seems to me the essence of humanity, and I despise them for it. Close quote. What a great line and a great moment of character growth, although the building to that moment seems to have lost some of the detail along the way. The unfolding of the world is done quite well. The description of the old world tech is there, but sometimes the lack of detail or description that the character doesn't have makes it difficult to guess. The author doesn't come from the Ernest Klein authorship of revealing the answer to your reader and then shoving their nose in it again and again in, some, in case someone's zoned out for the explaining of everything to them. The different types of societies discovered are odd, but also familiar. In post-apocalypse world, you want to enjoy the journey to see what the world has become. And reading this book, some 50 years after the publication, you get more tones of the alien and the changed world. With the uh, YA novel, I don't expect long explanations about the loss of the human spirit or why religion is still practiced. And clearly there would be a religion of the tripods that would form. The world is built so that it's stable for believability, but the imagination of explaining between the lines has a lot of freedom. One of the biggest drawbacks, without spoilers, is the ending. From my understanding, there wasn't a whole trilogy planned, and the end just happens. Uh, I enjoyed the mystery of a number of plot points. Still, it didn't have the mind-blowing revelation, but the abrupt and frankly boring nature that's less than half a page is disappointing. But I'm cheating and knowing that there are three other books, which I, of course, am going to immediately read for those actual young adults. The story is straightforward and hits on the themes of the human spirit and liberty. For the adults who haven't lost the desire to read books about running away and being the lone person standing up against the world, you can find yourself in the story as you try to escape the tripods. Final grade, B. The Lost Art of Dying, Reviving Forgotten Wisdom by Lydia S. Dugdale. Overview. Everyone dies, but not everyone dies well. Physician Dr. Dugdale wants us to see if it was possible for someone to die well after seeing scores of people die in some sort of limbo surprise and banality. Her research has taken her to the history of, ironically, the times of the Black Death. In this book, Dr. Dugdale presents her findings and expands on the truth that even though we can all die, it can be done well, with dignity, and with respect to everyone involved. In the day and age where we try to and sweep death under the carpet and hide it from children, we lose the ability to cope with the thing that will come for us all, the time of our death. Dugdale offers insight from a medical doctor's perspective on key stages of making the dying process a holistic undertaking. Dugdale presents the Judeo-Christian worldview concept of Ars Moridae, the art of dying. 
uh, was specifically developed by the Catholic Church during and after the Black Plague and the War of the Popes around 1450. It encourages those who are still healthy to acknowledge the possibility of death and those in later life to prepare for the coming of the end. Not only should preparation be undertaken by those who will experience firsthand, but also by the family and friends of those around that person. A big point of the book is showing that we die best when we are in community, friends, families, doctors, society, etc. And this was not only intended for the religious, but also for the carnal and secular, the elites and the rich, the poor and the common people. Jeremy Taylor published a Protestant version called The Rules and Exercise of Holy Dying. Doug Dale presents firsthand accounts of the dying process and those who did so well and those you didn't seem to go so well into that quiet night. Providing historical background and development to the dying, the art of dying, and the change in how we view medicine and hospitals offers an interesting and challenging concept that shows that we might have placed too much confidence in the hospital makeup and that we kind of suck at dying. The book covers nine different aspects of dying, including death itself, the finitude of death, dying in community, the context of how one goes, and then the psychological aspect like fear responses and what happens to the body, the spiritual effects and our rituals we take when dying, and also the life-preserving nature we hoist onto the medical community that may be ill-placed to the degree we do. After World War I and into the 1920s, the change in the art of dying succumbed to the art of living with the massive leaps in medicine uh, and medical life preventive means and technology. We've always been good at and adopters of new things, especially after the Industrial Revolution, but we've been equally terrible for seers of what effects will result due to those adoptions. Just look at the effects of the social media. A highlight from the book is chapter three about dying well in community. Doug Dale makes some really solid points on the importance this aspect affects us in life, as well as leading into our death. It's a highlight of what the Christian church is supposed to be. This is not a religious book per se, but it does cover aspects of religious elements and even one adopted by secular community. The community being replaced by the hospital was interesting, and the idea runs as a string throughout the book. Even though a medical hospital practitioner, Dugdale making this point really adds to the strength of these points. Hospitals take the place of homes as a place for offloading all sorts of care from families is a challenging subject matter and can lead to some good discussions for the readers and with others. Also interesting was when it comes to dying, mitigating pain management was far behind the fear of uh, losing independence and dignity during the dying process. Similar to how most people are less fearful of dying than they are of public speaking, they'd rather be in the box and than being at the podium talking about the person in the box shows us how much pride plays a part in our lives. One downside was chapter six about how we see the body through the dying process. This was mostly a set of stories that kind of meandered into a group of not really cohesive narratives or impact points as the other chapters. This could have really been a strong chapter to be harshly honest and take away from the doctor a kind of what to expect when you're expecting to die take that we often hide from collectively. Not really a negative, but something I would have expected from the book these days is a final chapter with a step-by-step guide on how to implement Ars Moridendi. There is a concluding chapter that does offer some general oversight. It encourages the readers to implement their own Ars Moridendi, as it is a useful model for anticipating and preparing for death, and encourages us to acknowledge our finitude, and to fail to do so means we probably won't die well. And a final encouragement was that we don't die well in isolation. So we should seek to broaden our community boundaries and inclusion while there is still time. 
Overall, this is a book for pretty much anyone since, you know, 10 out of 10 of us won't make it out of this world alive. For parents of kids of any age, this provides a good avenue of discussion. For those with experience of the loss of a loved one, it helps to prepare to have some hard conversations and how to help that person. And most obvious is for the person who will shirk off this mortal coil soon and give some clear guidelines on what to do to start the end. Final grade, The Thing in the Attic by James Blish. Overview. The Tellurians exist and survive on a planet that seems to want them dead if they descend from the trees where they live. There are stories that there were once giants who came from the stars to help them. There are some who are waiting for the return of the savior giants, and there are some who want to explore, or they get banished to the surface. No one has yet to return, though, either from the stars above or the earth below. Review. This short story by Blish does a really good job of quickly building a world and mystery and slowly reveals what's actually going on. I would not read the Goodreads summary so as not to have anything spoiled and just let the story unfold. Blish is known to have religious themes in his work, and there's no subtlety to it. Religious texts, heretical banished from society, Gnostic elements providing a launching point for a quick adventure story with a popular science fiction backdrop, it's all there. Blish does a really good job of dropping small hints along the way and then making full revelation to some larger points. There's nothing hidden at the end when all is revealed to a satisfying conclusion. Like all good short stories, the reader would have fun providing their own story of what happens next. I plan on reading Blish's commentary work soon, but I want to have more of his writing under my belt before I take a peek behind the scenes. Like his popular Star Dwellers, Blish's storytelling with religious elements in the sci-fi genre of the 1950s is a good read. Final grade? The City of Gold and Lead, The Tripods, Volume 2 by Jonathan Christopher. Overview. We left Will and his two friends, spoilers, finding the resistance of the White Mountains, but now the job is to do just that. Resist. The best way to do this is on the inside of one of the dome cities where the occupants of the tripods live. To do so, another dangerous journey of travel and competing in Olympic-type games occurs. Only the best of the best get to serve in these cities. There is no story of resistance against the tripods, only what Will and his friends have done. Is, is it even possible to resist the might of the tripod? Review. The second book in the series expands the story and reveals some of the secrets kept in the first book. While not planned as part of the series, the first was such a hit, along with a TV series in the UK, that the author produced two sequels and a prequel. An interesting note is in the preface that uh, even though it's called the Tripod series, the author didn't realize that he borrowed the tripods designed from Wells' War of the Worlds alien craft until it was about to be published. Uh, You know, I don't really buy the story, but I also don't see what the big deal is with it. Call it an homage to how creepy the tripods are. Another thing that the sequel does that could be said to be a negative was reveal a lot of the hidden details from the first book. Are the tripods alien in origin? Or are they uh, sentient mechanical machines? Or are there men inside? What do the caps do? To what extent do the tripods have in contact with them? How was Earth conquered and when? A lot of the details are fleshed out that the reader may have enjoyed not knowing. But if you want to jaunt on of the story, then the book picks up almost at the end of the first book. Will and company are still in the focus, and they're training for some of the games that are used by humanity to see who will go to the Tripod City and serve them. A small group of rebels will go under disguise in hopes of getting intelligence for the rebels to use. So the three characters need to be chosen by the rebels to represent in the games. Then they have to win the games, then they have to get into the city, then they have to survive and get out and back to the rebels. Obviously, there's no drama or action that will be had. No spoilers here, of course. The plot moves along well in the young adult novel. It's interesting to see the pacing for something written in the 1970s versus today. 
The pacing is done well again, and with the usual action, tension, and release that lends to a good read. There are setbacks and hurdles, both physical and psychological, that must be overcome or faced. There's another good part of the book, especially one from a first-person point of view. Our main character, Will, is starting to see his youthful faults, faults, and he struggles to try and overcome them. The character growth uh, follows the main plot of the espionage in an interesting way that parallels each other and plays into both parts of the storytelling. There are areas where one may feel like an exposition dump is happening, but the setup for it is plot-specific, so there's no, as you all know, happening here. Just an aside, there's one element of the story that made me shudder, thinking back to my reading of Octavia Butler's Dawn, book which I thought was one of the worst sci-fi books I've ever read. While I don't believe the sexual aspect of that is to be conveyed here, and thus safe for the youth to read, it was a scary feeling that I might have to relive the trauma of reading that story again. For those wishing to want more details to the mystery and continue the story of Will and his rebellion against the tripods, I believe this would be enjoyed. Final grade, B. Did Jesus Rise from the Dead by William Lane Craig. Overview. William Lane Craig in this compact book, presents some of the best historical evidences for the resurrection of Jesus and responding to claims against it. Review. A nice short book that can covers the main highlights of the resurrection, starting with the preaching of the disciples and the testimony of the Gospels. It also can, covers the burial of Jesus, then moves to the empty tomb, the witnesses, and finally the unlikely believers of James and Paul. Craig does offer some supporting evidence, and a few citations are also helpful. The ending covers explanations for the facts presented, including hallucinations, spoon theory, and resurrection. This isn't going to be a book where you're going to read the back and forth of scholars, but it does provide the biggest arguments for the minimal facts perspective. The item that could have been brushed up a bit more is the early creed of 1 Corinthians 15 and how early and important it was. It is there that it gets lost in the chapters it's presented in. A good reference for expanded study. Final grade, B. Did the resurrection happen? Really? By Josh McDowell and Dave Stern. Overview. A dialogue format between a skeptic and a believer in the resurrection over coffee. The authors present the historical case for the resurrection of Jesus and respond to claims made against the Christian narrative. Review. If you read Did Jesus Rise from the Dead by William Craig, you pretty much read this book. There are a few added details, but it's really only the style that you're paying for that's new. The conversation scheme has been done since Plato, so there's no hate on the style. However, if you're not into, into fictional conversations, then this would be a pass. There might have been more ways to take the narrative structure, but this is a college student in a coffee shop setting. Find information, and if you read a chapter a day, it'll be a quick 10 minutes max a day. Final grade, C-. minus. Classical me, classical thee. Squander not thine education by Rebecca Merkel. Overview. Rebecca Merkel writes to the sophomoric, classically educated homeschooler and gives the reasons for the journey along the path of classical education model and provides light at the end of the tunnel for those who may be wondering, is it really that important? Even the Latin? Written to middle school, high school, or even more advanced older elementary school kids, Merkel walks through each subject of classical education and talks about why each is important, how they fit together, and how it differs with what's going on in government schools. This isn't going to be the one book to rule them all for classical education. This is a love letter to students in the thick of it who need a good reminder of what the point of it all is and what the end goal is. Merkel gives a good start going forward with relating to the target reader and deals with the Latin, first of all, which is probably the biggest uh, difference when it comes to the classical education in subject material. Each subject covered is a quick get in and get out take so as to make the point to the student and provide some examples. 
Of course, this coverage of how classical education fits into glorifying God and helping develop a Christian worldview is what the goal here is. There are a few examples of how classical graduates use these skills separately or together. While there are some examples of these, I think the book could have used a few more. This is a small gripe for an important book to give a boost to students and thus much-needed resource. Final grade, emails. The Threshold, Leading in the Age of AI by Nick Shathrath. Overview. Accomplished leader consultant Nick Chathrath offers a revolutionary framework on how leaders in all kinds of organizations can adapt to a new age of technology, the age of AI, by leaning into the qualities and skills that make us uniquely human. Uh, That's what the back of the book says. I'm already predisposed to finding most leadership books useless. Most are trite, with a mixture of corporate speak and enough stories not about leadership to be its own book not to read. Corporate speak and acronyms that you need your own dictionary just to find out what they are simpler and better ways to get your point across. And this book is no exception. I thought maybe with a background being implementing or working with AI, it would talk more about AI and use alongside human resources or new avenues AI can supplant and assist workflows or something along those lines. After a brief introduction to AI, I mean very brief, It becomes just another management book that would never really help anyone be a better boss or supervisor. Things like increase the effectiveness of your leadership by combining stillness and productivity or reflect on your own path through life and leadership is less than cutting edge AI leadership, but your stereotypical leadership novella to sell to companies. Management who reads these books are even less effective when reading facades of leadership books like this, slapped with AI skin to sell it. Insufferable platitudes for those who need to learn better management or unintelligible Kool-Aid drinkers who set mission statements after attending leadership meetings for 28 hours a week out of their 30 worked. That makes workers even less goal-oriented. Pick up a used copy of It's Your Ship by Michael Abershoff and don't spend $30 on this. It does have a nice cover. Let the robots rise up and overtake us if it means not having to read another management leadership book. Final grade, F. Biblical Theology, a Canonical, Thematic, and Ethical Approach by Andreas Kostenberger and Gregory Goswell. Overview. Kostenberger and Goswell give the theology of every book of the Bible, but they also, you know, set up first why biblical theology is important, and especially for those who are more inclined to systematic theologies. This can be a reference, but also reading it from the cover to the last pages is a journey you will find worth the trip. Review. I had the privilege of reading this book and then interviewing Dr. Kostenberger and Dr. Goswell about it. You can find that interview in episode 221 on cave2thecross.com. Biblical theology has almost taken a backseat in scholarship, and subscribing to the best systematic theology seems to be all the rage in certain circles. The authors do a great job of showing the value biblical theology has to offer and how it can work hand-in-hand with systematic theology. You really do get three different books with this, a general overview of biblical theology, walking through all 66 books of the Bible, focusing on theme, background, and ethical point of view of each book, and you practically get a systematic theology from the previous two sections. Notes and citations are at the bottom of the page, just as the good Lord intends it, and the citations and different organizations at the back will also be very helpful as a reference guide. There are also sections of overview and referencing concerning the whole Old Testament, also a period between the Testaments and the section on the New Testament. Dr. Goswell took the Old Testament, as a well-versed and solid evangelical scholar, Dr. Kostenberger took the New Testament. One can use this resource as a reference guide. Walking through the book of the Bible, you're going to read through, teach on, or write about. We'll give you a good look using the trifold highlights. 
One can also read the book straight through, as I did, and see the beautiful way in which the Lord communicates who he is and what he wants from us as you walk through all 66 books of the Bible. The authors are biblically solid and have a high view of Scripture, which makes this a valuable resource for those at any stage of Bible study. I would definitely recommend the interview, which can be found on YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey, your favorite podcast catcher, cavethecross.com, episode 221, for a fuller discussion. Final grade, A+. Social Conservatism for the Common Good, a Protestant Engagement with Robert P. George by Andrew T. Walker. Overview. Andrew Walker does his darndest to convince the reader of the importance of social conservative Robert P. George, who found his biggest influence before the start of the 21st century. Even though George is a Roman Catholic, Walker heralds George's work and argumentation to the Protestants of America, looking for some philosophical grounding to their conservatism. Review. It should be made clear that this review is about the book that covers Robert P. George and not a critique of George and his philosophy per se. Some overlapping is unavoidable, but this is a book review and not necessarily a a philosophy review. What Andrew Walker does here is introduce Robert P. George to the audience that probably hasn't heard about or remembers George from the earlier 90s when he was more of the forefront of conservative thought. The audience Walker's directing his book and what the authors of the individual chapters are writing to is the point to the conservative Christian evangelical. This point is made over and over and to a fault. While it's clear that the authors are passionate about their friend and intellectual leader, there is an overemphasis on the audience. Since George is a Roman Catholic, the authors try to find common ground for the audience to accept the ideas coming from George, who is making them from a non-religious point of view or from a religious view that Catholics and Protestants would likely agree on. This goes from at times not being needed to emphasize to at worst trying to sell a used car to someone just browsing on a lazy Sunday. The evangelical who is reading this philosophy-heavy, for a layperson, book is going to care more about the ideas rather than the ideas coming from a Roman Catholic, or its readers who isn't going to be swayed that they are coming from a Roman Catholic and won't be reading it. This book is an overemphasis evangelical tool to evangelicals on a non-evangelical. I won't go through each chapter, but the range is quality is all over the place depending on the author. There are chapters where the focus is on one of George's books and the philosophy is mixed throughout the discussion of the book and the impact. These should have been separate for clarity purposes. The chapter talking about George's use of natural law was very muddled and definitions of terms weren't highlighted as needed. It reminded me of the issues people had with Clarence Thomas during his confirmation due to his belief and use of natural law philosophy. It's a virtue signal phrase thrown out to alert people that this person is not to be trusted because they're thinking conservative trying to sneak a limitation of power into the Constitution was supposedly a limiting document in and of itself. The chapter of George's work on abortion and providing the anti-abortion movements in the 1990s with some secular ways of bringing the negative aspect of abortion into view was well-written. A discussion on the left's attempt to split human being and personhood was fine, but could have used some polishing. The authors, in their affection for George and the anti-abortion movement, however, don't go on to discuss the limited impact of the philosophy until much recently and used better by abortions, murder, reformed evangelicals of the abolitionist movement. There are definitely missed opportunities for discussions of worldview and how one would discuss with secular humanists areas that are clearly theistic presuppositions. Human values, worth, and objective truths were once taken for granted in the 1990s and previously are areas of disagreement now. A big letdown is the discussion of George's view of the role of government and conflicts that raised in the push for democracy. There is a chapter that attempts to talk about limiting the giving to Caesar what is Caesar's only, but that one is just as muddled. 
Having a government that looks to promote that which is good and limiting that which is bad needed more work, and while it could have made good fodder for a counterpoint-type book, some discussion on the limit of George's alleged libertarian classical liberal views, which are only espoused until the final chapter. A philosophical book needs to look at these types of contradictions, and since George is human, it would be just fine to talk about how they are conflicts or further discussion would be needed. It's okay to be critical of your friend, too. If you're looking to read about the classical conservative from the second half of the 20th century, this is probably a good book to pick up. However, the muddled and at times unfocused writing is a hindrance. On top of that, the constant need to pat the hand of evangelicals and let them know that it's okay to agree with a Roman Catholic on thoughts that someone who is a Roman Catholic has provided has the same feeling as listening to Navi the fairy in Ocarina of Time constantly saying, Hey, hey, listen, over and over. Hello, hey, listen. Final grade, C-. The Wizard Stone by Herman P. Hunter. Overview. Wizard apprentice, but not wizard, Odo, has been entrusted with a mystical and secret wizard stone from his master. The wizard has hired the captain and his band of sellswords to escort and protect Odo and see that he makes it to the king and queen. It's an easy journey. Well, of course not. Uh, with all sorts of evil and villainy and treachery afoot. Review. Having read the novella The Revenant and the Tomb by Herman P. Hunter, and I enjoyed that story, I was interested to check out a full novel, if not in the same universe, then in the same fantasy style that I enjoyed from Hunter. In this fantasy world, it appears as if God exists in the same way he exists in our world. This world just has more direct magic and corrupted evil monsters. I mean in the book, not here. With any story, the question is, do you data dump the world onto the reader, or do you discover it along the the way with the plot? The later is done here. But to the extent you have some gaps on the setting and background, and previous factions, and wars, and the like. More time needed to be allotted to more world building, and with a band of mercenaries that have seen it all, and been there, done that, the setup is there. Even the main character, Odo, is the foil for the audience. The strong characters are the mysterious mercenaries, that were only open up to about halfway or to three-fourths of the way through this book, sadly. One of the best is the muscle with a lot to offer and is sadly silenced too quickly. All characters in the party are there to build the captain as a tough but honorable gray hat. There is some good character building here that helped build up the climax. The telling of the portion is done well and through a couple of the mercenaries. The show portion is lacking other than the captain continuing the job of protecting Odo. I believe the payoff, but it wasn't as heightened as it could have been. Odo exists as a character, and it seems my joke of fantasy, taking the farm boy who knows only his little world until he's forced out into the big wide world, still holds true. However, there was quite a bit that I didn't get. As a wizard's apprentice, he seems to be able to do some magic, but he's not a wizard, and talks of them as they are a race, or at least something born to a person. It seems either Odo believes that, or is wrong, or it's just not clear as he can do some magic by saying magic words and doing some room protection over the MacGuffin. However, his magic is so weak, it seems to not really work, except when it does. Odo grows as a character over time, but I kept reading him as a kind of soft, sniveling guy, with a couple of plot points that he shined through on. The journey has several solid parts, and the impending doom around every corner is pretty solid. There are a few turns that happen that seem to be more for the sake of the story and not really hinted at within the character's beliefs, attitudes, or signaling. My biggest issue is with the ending, and how much it affects the journey aspect, and even some of the character's responses. Again, no spoilers. An issue I had with The Revenant in the Tomb was the quick ending, and while 
the reveal here is more timed out. There's a time from the reveal to the resolve of Odo that I just didn't find believable at all. Then there's the realization that the bad guy's motivation is only consistent if they believe what Odo believes, even though I'm pretty certain the bad guy would have known better. Even if I'm mistaken, the motivation from the bad guy is only there if he and Odo believe the same thing or he has nothing better to do. But it is those final pages where Odo is told he has some time to make a decision and he makes one quickly. The emphasis seems to be on what is the point of the story. And it's his learning from the captain and others in his journey of growth. But there is just so much that is unresolved emotionally. I once again listen to the audiobook and narrator Steve Fortune, and he knocks it out of the park again. Not a bad book by any means, but quite a bit that I took issue with and found a lot unresolved. I did not like the ending at all, and not sure spending more time to flush out the details would have helped me there. Some character work in there for a couple of characters, but not much with the main. I would have also liked to have seen some more implications of the fantasy world in which God exists. Final grade, B+. Ilium by Dan Simmons. Overview. 21st century professor Thomas Hockenberry has been brought back from the dead by the Greek gods to witness and write down the events of the Iliad and make sure everything turns out the way Homer described it. Things don't go as planned. There's also uh, a couple of robots in the far future who must travel to Mars where uh, chariots of fire threaten post-humans, Earth. Things don't go as planned. There are a couple of perfected, resurrected humans who live for a while and can do pretty much anything they want. A group has gotten bored and wants to explore an old Earth planet below them, find an old woman who is said to have lived for hundreds of years. Things don't go as planned. There's another book after this one. Uh, things didn't go as planned. Review. This is my second attempt at reading a book by Dan Simmons. I read and hated Hyperion, and after a recommendation from Nick Riccata of uh, of this book, it's clear that I do not care for anything by Simmons and will stop trying. I would not say that Simmons is without talent, and it seems that a number of people enjoy his books. Simmons' uh, pacing here is a slog. It's high school teaching telling a bad story to get people interested in reading the Iliad. There's no character that is worth caring about. The main character barely seems like he would survive a fistfight, let alone carry out the feats required of him in the story. For over three quarters of the book, three different storylines crawl and switch enough times without any real revelation or reason why one would care to continue that it is now three stories that crawl. It's not until the last quarter of the book that anything of actual value occurs. Even then, it's a mixture of confusing reveals and plot points that I didn't know what really was going on or what extent things mattered. Echoes of Hyperion loom greatly here. Simmons knows his history in his Iliad. However, what in two books could have been one and it's one that I would not be continuing, as I fear I would lead to my own odyssey. Final grade, F. The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross by Carl Lafferton. Overview. The story of Eden, the garden given to man by God in the beginning, does not end after the third chapter of Genesis. It is carried on through the rest of the scriptures, and the anointed one is the only one that can lead his people through the separating curtain by the means of the cross. The artwork by Catalina Ecoveri, it is a joy for children of all ages, even those really old children who need to hear the story again and again. One of my favorite books of the past decade has been God Dwells Among Us by G.K. Beale. In that, he takes us through the motif of the garden from Eden to the tent to the temple to Christ to the church to the new heavens and new earth. It is a phenomenal, brain-breaking, in a good way, book. This is almost that book for kids. 
While focusing on the division of man from God as the result of sin that leads us out of Eden and causes division even in the tent and temple, and then the destruction and separation of the work of the man God Jesus, we have that thread that reaches back to Genesis of it all to the end. The book doesn't get too heady, but calling it a surface-level undertaking would be inaccurate. In fact, it would have been good to see a little more of that thread in other parts of Scripture, but that is a little nitpicky. I would put this right on the shelf next to Kevin DeYoung's The Biggest Story, as far as story structure and art. The art here is wonderful. Gone are the days of the dentist's office, bland depictions of Jesus and children, or simple round-faced drawings. There is frameable art here. A good introduction to soteriology, theology, for kids. Final grade, B+. Personality and Worldview by Jonathan Herman Bavink. Overview. Jonathan Herman Bavink examines the relationship between the soul, each human's unique personality, and worldview. It's dangerous when a worldview is misapplied, but it's also dangerous is the person who doesn't acknowledge his or her worldview, especially the Christian who is able to be justified in knowledge through the Christian worldview. Review. It's interesting to read presuppositional apologetic topics pre-1970s. Cornelius Van Til was writing around 1950s, and usually, before the 2000s, you really need a decade or two before people started interacting with the subject well enough. One could argue that needs is needed these days as well. Here, Bevink isn't so much a presuppositionalist per se, but a lot of the book has a number of elements that will be familiar to those in the presup camp. First of all, the translation and the explanation of the translation is top-notch. Reasons given for the choices, inclusion, or editing are made right off the bat, and more translator works could use this type of rigor. I applaud James Eggleton for it. Bevink starts where I believe all people should start, and that's with defining his terms. Worldviews, personalities, and world vision are his starting points, and description of them are the necessary lifeblood in understanding where he's coming from and the points he's making here. Here, I think many Van Til, Bonson presuppositionalists will find useful distinction between world vision and worldview, and it's something to ponder. What Bavink looks at where, when it comes to personality is something I was excited to read about, and it's where I think this book falters the most as he doesn't really come back to this part and leaves it underdeveloped and focuses more on the world vision, worldview components. The preceding chapters covers the gamut of philosophical revolutions and eras. Empiricism, rationalism, mysticism, east-west divide, and atheistic materialism are laid out in depth. In fact, I would say there'd be no way to charge Bevinks with the surface-level undertaking of the topic in such a small amount of space. However, I do think Bevink gets too caught up in the informing his audience of these worldviews that the personality, the bridging between world vision and worldview, is almost lost in the pages. Even in the last chapter, where I thought he might tie everything together, while I would have made for a messy display, uh, wasn't done, and again, it's as if Bavink only cooked one side of the pancake. I think this is a worthwhile book to have on the topic of different worldviews, especially from a time period in which Bavink is writing. I don't think you are given what the title suggests by half, but I think this is something presuppositionalists could use as a springboard to talk about how personality forms the bridge between world vision and into worldview, even if one were to claim to have never formed one before. Final grade, C-minus. 